Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace. Wow. Y'all hear okay? Good. I'll talk quieter. That's good. Good to have y'all back. Um, feels like it's been a while. Um, so here we are. We're about to step into the Christmas season, and uh, we're going to be talking about the death of Jesus today. Uh, how many of y'all have been in the room when somebody died? So, yep, yeah. So about half. Uh, so I've been in the room uh, when a church member died. Uh, she was alone. All of her family was away from her, and I was the only one there. It was it was crazy. Um, I was in the room when my dad died, um, and I was in the same house when my mom died. Um, and there's just something happens. Uh, those of y'all who experienced it, you probably had the same experience. I mean, the the veil becomes pretty thin. Yeah. Uh, between heaven and earth in those moments. And every Sunday morning, if you're in the traditional service, we talk about this in the creed. You know, he was crucified, died, and he was buried, right? And we know the story, and it almost becomes like, okay, that happened. And we don't let it kind of... Uh, hit us in the chest where it's supposed to. And so I'm hoping that this morning uh, that we can do that. Uh, boy, talk about the veil being thin in Jerusalem that day. Boy, about as thin as it could possibly be. And Mark and the other gospel writers included it, included this part in the story. I mean, they could have just reported he he was crucified and uh, gone through all the stuff that Pastor Kurt led you through a couple of weeks ago, and then he died. But no, there's this 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 content that the the gospel writers give us to make a great point, and it's supposed to do something here. Uh, one of the things that Jesus does on the cross is that he quotes from Psalm 22. And we're going to get into a little bit of that today. But as you know, um, anytime, even on the cross, Jesus is not just talking about that one verse that he quotes. He's talking about the whole thing. And you, you know, we'll get into this. I think the people who heard this got distracted by something. And it's pretty pretty clear that, at least in my mind, that Jesus had gone through the whole thing. And I wonder if he even made it to Psalm 23. So that's what we're going to read this morning, and we'll bounce back to Psalm 22 as we as we get to it. But so Psalm 23. So we don't know for sure if Jesus, to himself or to others, said this, but it's possible. So envision Jesus on the cross praying this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, I thank you for my brothers. And I thank you for this time that we can come together and open your word. Lord, I pray that as we uh, delve into these words this morning, that in this room, in your presence, with each other, that the veil will become very thin. And the men that you are calling us to be will be spoken forth even more as we prepare to go and to be with others this this day. Prepare to celebrate Christmas. Strengthen us with these words, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Okay. Alright, so verse 33, that's where Pastor Kurt said I should pick up, and so here we are. Um, is there anything left over from the last section that y'all had a question about before we move forward about the actual crucifixion? Notice this. The, uh, the, the folks that are insulting him, uh, they again pick up on this theme about the temple. That was one of the things that really, really upset the, the people, the religious leaders, that Jesus was talking about the temple in terms of it being destroyed. They couldn't have that. So that's, that's going to come into play here in just a minute. All right. We're ready? Here we go. So the crucifixion started about 9 o'clock. So it's been about three, we're about three hours in. At noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Um, people have tried to figure out what this could have been. Maybe it was just a big cloud. Maybe it was an eclipse. It couldn't have been an eclipse. Uh, by the way, uh, this was around Passover. So when does the moon, uh, when the moon, during Passover, when does the moon come up? That's right, it's sunset. When the moon is full, which is around Passover, it, it always comes up at sunset. Um, so there's that. So it's not it's not an eclipse. Uh, most likely this is some sort of supernatural act of God. But it's trying to communicate something. Right? What is your first memory of darkness being mentioned in Scripture? That's right. The very beginning. Before creation, right? Just turn, just turn to Genesis 1 there. Real quick. So verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I just don't think that um, this is by accident, um, but indeed this is what what is happening. That God is allowing this darkness to take place because in essence, right now in this moment, creation is in the birth pains of having a brand new start. So we are we are reverting back. I mean, <laughs> the absolute antithesis to what God intended for His good creation is being played played out in God's very self on the cross. Absolute worst. And it's like everybody involved thinks this is what is for the better. And in fact. It is Jesus laying down his life that is going to give the world a new start. A new creation is coming, right? And the darkness, just as the darkness in creation prepared God for God to create, so this darkness is going to bring preparation for a new creation to be unleashed. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So turn, turn real quick to uh, Psalm 22. So a question that you can can ask, I think, it's a good question, is how do people get through the hardest times in their life? If you are a follower of God, follower of Jesus, how do you get through the most difficult moments of your life? Well, I can't, you can... I don't think you can argue that this is the difficult, most difficult six hours of Jesus' life. He's on the cross. And yet, this is how Jesus gets through it. He prays. And he prays specifically a psalm like Psalm 22. For the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning. Anybody else have anything different there? Psalm 22 it's the the the, uh, the 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 thing that comes before that we never read before we get to the verse. Doe of the dawn. Doe of the dawn. Good. What else? Have we got anything else? It says the Psalm of David. That's all. You don't have anything else. The, the preamble in the Psalm of David. Oh, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The doe of the of the, uh, the morning or the doe of the dawn. Another way that uh, th- like this is kind of a a uh, a metaphor, and the doe is a star. So it could be the star of the morning or the the morning star, right? And uh, 
you know, you've heard that thing. It's always darkest when. It's, that's not true. <laughs> it's not. I mean, but it's, it, it, it feels good, though. I mean, as soon as the sun goes down, the sun goes down. As soon as you get, you get through all of those, uh, what are those other terms? Twilight. Twilight and all that stuff. Yeah, you get through all that. When all that stuff is passed, it's dark, right? But what this is, this tune in, of Psalm 22 that Jesus would have sung this to, we don't know what this tune so- sounds like. It's lost, right? Um, but the name of the tune would have done something, and it would have reminded them of that first star um, that would have come, that last star that would have been shining bright in the morning, uh, which this is definitely the psalm plays that out. All right, so notice, I want you to, to make little notes. Just put a L, as in left hand, by verse 1, verse 6, verse 12. Put an R for the right hand by verse 3, verse 9. In verse 19. And put a W by verse 22. The W stands for the win. So David here in this psalm is having an argument with himself. He said, on the one hand, this is my experience. On the other hand, this is who God is. So let me just read through a few of these, and you'll kind of get the get the gist of it. And uh, also note that certainly Jesus did not just pray the first line. And that's when you hear sermons on this, uh, when you hear people talk about it, it's like, oh my gosh, Jesus experienced God turning his back on him. No way. No way. Absolutely no way. That is a thin reading of the text. And a thin reading, it is reading it out of context, number one, because here is Psalm 22. That's what he's, that's what Jesus is reading this in. No way did God ever turn his back on his son. Ever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. So David's experience is telling him God has abandoned him. But when he allows himself to be centered in the truth of what, how God has interacted with his people, this is the truth. That he is the one who saves. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. 
He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do we see that back earlier in the text? Absolutely. From what Pastor Kurt took y'all through, yeah. All the insults. Verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust. Notice all in all the right hand where I had you do the R's, the center of the of those verses are the word trust. Right? Yet you brought me out of the womb, you made me trust in you even at my mother's breath breast. From birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. This is back to the left hand. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so as you can see in the psalm, the battle between the left and the right hand. I'm making that up, right? The left and the right hand, it wins out over here. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly, David goes on to say. And so this is Jesus on the cross. It's very clear, especially that last section, that Jesus would have have prayed through this whole uh, whole psalm. But the people don't hear all that. Verse 35. Just like many of the sermons you hear preached on this, they stop at that verse, the the first verse. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Why would they think that? You hear it? Ailey, Ailey? It's very, it's very similar to how they would have heard Elijah in Aramaic. All right. Well, then all of this, uh, this, uh, backstory would have been rushing forward if they thought that he was calling for Elijah. So turn to Malachi. Malachi in our Bibles is the last book of the Old Testament. I'm sorry. Yeah. Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. 
This is verse 5. Very end of the book. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so you... you. Uh, A prophet says something like that. People are going to be paying attention. And this has been brought up in the Gospel of Mark uh, earlier. Y'all remember how it was brought up? Anybody? Because they're they're saying, the people are basically saying, well, Elijah's got to come first. And what does Jesus say? Elijah has come. And who is the, the true Elijah? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is. And so, uh, it's interesting here that this is where the people go. They have declared, uh, the, the leaders and the people have declared Jesus to be a false prophet. Yet there's still something in them that wants to believe that something decisive is going to happen. Right? If they think Eli- if they think he could be calling for Elijah, there could be some hope in them that the Messiah is going to come. But they missed the word that Elijah has already come. Verse 36. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Like, okay, let's give him a little refreshment and maybe he can hang on a little bit longer and maybe Elijah will show up. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And if Elijah does, that would prove that he is what? He's the Messiah. Vinegar doesn't last. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Very interesting detail, right? That he he adds here. So, again, we all know what's behind that curtain, right? What's there? That is the Holy of Holies. That is the hot spot in the Jewish uh, imagination, the Jewish mind of where the physical manifest presence of God on earth resides. And who gets to go back there? The high, the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. Very good. And now, the thing... It's like a phone book. It's like, y'all remember the old Dallas phone books? Anybody remember those? Huge. That's how thick this curtain was. It wasn't just this, ooh, veil in the wind. It was really, really thick. Now this thing is torn. So when Jesus breathes his last, something decisive happens. That a place that only was granted access, like the manifest presence of God, one time a year to one person, 
is now open to who? Everybody, really? What does the next verse say? And when the centurion, that's not what you're expecting. Like, again, these, because we read this so much at Easter time and, and, and we know the story, we know this, I mean, finally, after all this time together, we kind of get to, get to our, our graphic, right? This is the moment of our graphic right here uh, that we've been waiting for. A centurion of all people. Now that guy looks pretty, I mean, I don't know, harmless. I mean, he's got a, got a spear in his, in his hand. This guy was a hardened killing machine. That's what Romans did. Especially in places like Judea to keep the peace. A hardened killing machine. The curtain of the temple has been torn. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. back to the very beginning this is Mark chapter 1 the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God and we get to so so here's, here's, here's a good question what do God, demons and a centurion all have in common? It's more specifically, Tom said they all recognize the Lord. More specifically, in Mark's gospel, they are the only people that say this, that Jesus is the Son of God. So, Mark, Mark is the narrator. He, he declared, at the, at the very beginning, this is like the most important thing. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of of God. Uh, verse chapter 1 verse 11 you can just write these down. Uh, God uh, himself at Jesus this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. That's at the baptism. That's chapter 1 verse 11. Uh, chapter 3 verse 11 that is when the evil spirits or the demons declare that Jesus is the son of God. Chapter 9 verse 7 Again, at the transfiguration, God himself says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. A little bit of a difference there. And then here, the most unlikely. I mean, we've, we've had, Jesus has had run-ins with the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's had people that are thoroughly Jewish. Heck, his own disciples, where are they right now? They're out. Now we'll see some women are hanging around. Some of his women followers are, but they're out. So they're not saying this. But the most unlikely person, Centurion, is declaring to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And if somebody like that can get it, who else can get it? Everyone can. So it's like it's like this tearing of the of the veil and this this uh confession or proclamation of the centurion, they go together. The the gospel is ending or is coming to this climactic end, saying, Whoa, whoa, whoa. This gospel is for everyone. Creation is starting over for everyone. Will you believe? And will you follow this crucified man? <laughs> yeah, we don't get any earthquakes in Mark. Uh, we get earthquakes other places, but uh, it is fun to talk about earthquakes, Tom. Always is. Um, because you know when an earthquake in the in the Bible happens, it's not just an earthquake happens. Anybody? Come on. Think about the decisive earthquake the, the earthquakes that have happened. And those are times. So in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah saw the Lord and the the foundations of the temple shook. Think Isaiah's life was ever the same after that? No, sir. So that's what an earthquake represents. So when you're reading in Scripture and you find an earthquake, the status quo has forever been turned up on its head and things will never be the same. So in Matthew, there's an earthquake at this moment. And that's what Matthew's communicating to us, that things will never be the same. You think this centurion's life was ever the same after this? No, and and you wonder, like, what did he see? What did he hear that made him draw this conclusion? Was it just the countenance on Jesus' face? That's probably part of it. Was it that he heard those words of forgiveness spoken to him? Because he would have been one of those that would have heard that, right? Father, forgive them. Is that, is that in Luke? I don't think that's in Mark. I think it's in Luke. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? He would have heard that. Yeah, but he wouldn't have had any of the backstory. He wouldn't have known any of the stuff. No, none of that. Is there any connection between the centurion that called Jesus to come heal his son mm. and this centurion? I don't know. That's a great question. That is in... Matthew 8, 5. If y'all want to go look at that, you know, that, that, that's a remarkable part of the story too, that a centurion would even, even come and ask Jesus for anything. It's remarkable. Um, it, it's just interesting to, that, that line there is, is like compelling to me to ponder. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died. Now what does that mean? The centurion seen covered thousands. That's right. And I wonder if it was the recitation of Psalm 22. Because this guy, he saw hundreds of people be crucified. And what's the typical way in which they do it? 
I'm sure it's like horrible and terrible and, and lots of, lots of suffering and cursing and, and yet Jesus is saying, I trust in God. Yeah, this is true, but this is truer. I wonder if it was that. So he was the first Gentile convert. Seems to be. So at least from what he, what he knew, we don't know anything else of his story from this time forward. Uh, but my goodness, it is remarkable that this is how this story is coming to a climax in the form of a centurion confessing faith in Jesus. I think, uh, we need to, we need to tidy it up. As followers of the risen Christ, and you know, this story, uh, it's not it's not finished, right? And we'll finish that in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I want to be like Jesus in this moment. Like I want people to see something different in me and how I live and how I die. I'm sure you y'all appreciate the nitty gritty work that we do up here, but some things that cause me to be salty from time to time. Is that okay? Can I be salty? So there will be people that have not darkened the door of the church in decades. So I got one of these calls yesterday, and um, it was from a son whose mom joined the church back in the 70s. That's a long time ago. Right, and they have not been uh, been active in the church for a long time, but she is on death's door, and now they want the church to be involved in their life. Now they want the pastor to show up, and guess what the pastor does? He shows up. That's what we do. We show up, but I'm still salty, right? Because uh, they're grasping for something. There's this belief that, okay, I'm scared because I'm about to die. There's this belief that if the pastor shows up, then that may give me a little bit more assurance that I'm going to go to heaven here in a few hours or a few days. That's, that's kind of the, the, the mentality, right? Right. Man, whenever I die, I hope and pray, and hopefully this will give you all something to ponder, that I will be giving blessings out and not needing reassurance because the reassurance has already been worked for all throughout my life. It's not something that I need because I already have it. And that people will look, wow, did you see the way he died? And that will point people to Jesus. So what needs to happen here? To assure that the day, and you know, we never know how we're going to die. But that if we have, if people have the opportunity to see us die, that it's a way to help them point others to God. All right. That was a lot. What are y'all's thoughts? Questions? It's sad. I, I 
feel sadness. In the midst of the saltiness, I feel sadness. Um, I feel sadness that they lost. Because it's like people, the, the temptation is to make our life and to make our last days, okay, am I going to go to heaven when I died? So that's the wrong question throughout our life. Am I going to get there? That's the wrong question. Am I being faithful? Am I surrendering every moment of every day, all of my self-will, to God? See, that's the beauty in the journey. And then the, the reward, that comes. So is it fair to say it's an aggravation? Initially, it's an aggravation. Initially, it is. That's why I always say what I do. <laughs> well, it's, it's a human emotion. Sure. You know, it's like it's like you try to be friends with somebody and they alienate you. Yeah. Suddenly, they really need help. Then they come and you're That's right. Yeah. That's that's a normal human. Right. It is what it is. Yeah. What else? Today, that the awe and amazement that must have filled that centurion's heart on that day, Lord, will fill our hearts today. Lord, I pray that as we reap the glorious benefits of your death and your resurrection. That our life will be so ordered as to point others to you in the way that we live. And Lord, when that time comes for all of us in the way that they die, the way that we die, may people when they see us, when they talk to us, may they think of you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Much love. Pastor Kurt will pick up in verse 40 next week. the decision. So we're finishing this by, we'll, this this study will be done on the 19th. That will be our last, and then we'll take two weeks off, and then we'll be back on January the, is that the 9th? Is that the second Tuesday in January? Uh, the 9th, and uh, we thought, anytime there's a lot of scary things happening in the Middle East, a lot of crazy people start talking about the end times. 
And so uh, we've taught it before, but it's time for us to do it again. So we're gonna we're gonna probably spend about eighteen months going through Revelation. And so your job, everybody ready? Your job is to invite somebody to come with you. It's easy for people to get. This is easy to draw a crowd when we're teaching on Revelation, right? So uh, my challenge to you is to find someone who maybe they're just kind of on the fringes. Uh, Maybe they need a friend and they need the word to invite them to come. Let's get this room twice as full as it was, as it is, and let's uh, share together. So that's what that's what we'll start at the beginning of the year. Sound good? All right.